Hello Brooklyn, how you doing? You where you going? We cannot come to. And if I can, I'ma be your man. You can be my lady and have my baby and drive my car. You got me crazy. Whatever so you going, baby, you going? just take me. Cause I'm so taken. Hello, Nets fans. How you doing? The Russell and Fro podcast is back. Russell here, Fro there. Brett, the man bun, Garofalo, recording as always with my esteemed, erudite, illustrious colleague, Carl, the talent Jackson, coming to you live from the great state of Vermont. We have a lot of things to cover, some net specific, some not, with a lot of changes happening around the league and some uh, historic, very, very tragic events going on. Um, but given all the things going on in the league and the world, I think it's always helpful to, to check in with our, our friend, colleague, and emotional support system up there in the great white north. Carl, how are you? Brett, I'm floored that you called me erudite. That, uh, I'm not sure that's warranted, but I'll, but I'll take it as a compliment. I was going for alliteration, and then I got to illustrious and quickly moved on. <laughs> well, you know, hey, it's a good it's a good starting point. Let's let's you know let's kick it off uh, let's kick it off on a high note. Oh. Yeah, I think we should. I, I do want to. I do think that we should probably touch on the Kobe Bryant situation, given that it's something so huge that rocked the league, and it is going to have such a profound effect if it hasn't already on Kyrie Irving, who was like a little brother to Kobe Bryant, so much so that Kyrie called him immediately from the locker room after they won the championship in that crazy game seven in 2016. So it, uh, it is it is Nets related, if you want to think about it that way. Yeah, I mean, there's also the uh, Kerry Kittles uh, angle to make it Nets related as well. Uh, don't remind me if we want to dredge that up, but, um, no, I mean, it's, um, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty wild kind of emotional event, uh, that I think will be kind of a, you know, you'll remember where you were when, uh, type moment, uh, just something that was so surprising, um, so, you know, tragic and and sad. and, And particularly when you get into the details of, him traveling with his daughter and his daughter's teammates and, and, you know, fellow coaches um, just, you know, really, really tough to swallow and, and kind of something I think that the entire NBA community is, is going through together in terms of remembering him and remembering his legacy and, and all that that entails good and bad. Um, And, you know, just kind of, I think getting over the, the, the shock and the surprise of it, you know, particularly, from a Nets perspective with the the two of them sitting courtside at the Hawks game, Kyrie's first game back just like two weeks ago. It's uh, it's, it's, it still feels pretty surreal to be perfectly honest with you. It does. Yeah, it really does. Even, even after the funeral happens, I still don't think it's going to have hit me. And I, I have to say, I had, I had no idea that Kobe Bryant meant this much to me as a fan until this happened, which is pretty messed up to say, but I, I never, ever thought that I would be this devastated by somebody that I had never met uh, passing away, even if it wasn't a tragic accident. And I, I, I found myself sitting there, I, I woke up the next morning and I was watching Kobe Bryant tribute videos on Instagram, on Twitter, on the NBA subreddit. And I was, I was crying. It was, it was like, it's like, I'm not a Lakers fan. When Kobe was playing, I, I, I loved to hate the guy. And now here I am mourning, mourning this guy's death and bringing, bringing up what you said earlier too. I mean, he was, uh, he was a fan's dream on the court. I mean, he's the guy that you would want to be drafted to your franchise cough john calipari cough Kerry kittles but uh, b- because all he cared about was legacy and winning championships and he stayed with the franchise entire career I mean, that, that's the guy that you want right how many players are like that in the league nowadays uh, like maybe we'll see what happens with Giannis, uh steph curry and that's that, that's really a, that's really about it and we're not going to see many players like that. And I think that's probably why he meant so much to NBA fans outside of that, the late career surge when he became more involved in the league and became a mentor for players and became more of a brand and a, and a figure very much, much like the opposite of Michael Jordan, who was more of a recluse and won championships and stayed pretty standoffish with 
with teammates. But yeah, it really caused a lot of introspection for me because being so sad and devastated about it, but also knowing that some of the things that he had done off the court was 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 pretty was pretty conflicting. <laughs> I was like, wow, I'm re- I'm really broken up about this. But he he clearly did at least one pretty terrible thing in his life. But this really is affecting me. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Like, and it's been an interesting thing to absorb. I think, like, through social media, which you know, I feel like is always a terrible medium for <laughs> nuance and, and and discussion. But like, the interesting, I don't know. The interesting thing about it is like you think of like kind of all all the victims in the in the helicopter and kind of the people well well actuallying to sort of talk about how you know you know we should be celebrating the other other people as well. Um, which I which I completely agree with, and, and obviously I think everybody that knew them and, and loved them and cared about them, you know, feels this tragedy just as much as anybody else does for Kobe. And I think what the thing that makes it so interesting from like a celebrity culture perspective, like you said, is like is the relationship that so many of us had with him that didn't know him, that maybe weren't even fans of his, but just followed him. And and I think that relationship is kind of very very personal for everybody, whether it's, you know, looking at somebody like Spencer Dinwiddie who grew up in Los Angeles, kind of idolizing him or somebody like Kyrie Irving who, um, you know, developed a pretty close relationship with him going forward or, or, you know, I mean, like, like for you or me, like, you know, he came into the league when we were 11, I think, and, you know, retired when we were what, like 25. And so, you know, that's a pretty big, you know, in terms of the types of changes in your life that happen across that spread when, you know, 11 years old, you're kind of just first becoming your own person a little bit and having sort of your own thoughts. And and by, you know, 25, you're like a relatively somewhat established adult as much as anyone feels that way <laughs> ever, you know? So like, that's a pretty, I mean, that, you know, for him to be kind of a constant throughout that is a pretty, pretty big deal. Um, so, you know, I think it's been interesting to kind of see everybody's, you know, different kind of individual relationships with, uh, I guess, maybe more his legend or his myth than than even him as a person. And then obviously, you know, keeping in mind for, you know, people who, you know, it, people who are survivors of sexual assault or, um, you know, are close with people who, who are or know people or empathize with it, you know, that may be the only relationship that they have with him, right? Which is that, you know, he just may be a reminder of the fact that, you know, oftentimes when, when those types of things get committed, the person that's, you know, guilty of it is able to kind of go on living a normal life and, and the victims are scarred and, you know, find it difficult to ever recover. And so, you know, I understand kind of how difficult it must be for them as well. Um, and, and, you know, also how kind of conflicting and, and, you know, how, how many different emotions are kind of all wrapped up into this for, for everybody. So um, it's a tragic thing. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot to take in. It's a lot to kind of try to make, uh, hash of or, or anything like that. I mean, like it's, it's, uh, it's a lot, man, but it, yeah. it definitely, I, I think I kind of had the same reaction as you too, which is like, never his biggest fan. Frankly, like my favorite memory of him, his was watching the gold medal game against Spain at like, I mean, I, Br- Brendan and I were out drinking somewhere that night and the game, it was the Olympics in China. So the game was at like four in the morning or something. And I, I think I remember like waking up in the fourth quarter of that game, like probably with my face, like in a Domino's pizza box or something, some cliche <laughs> like that. And he just went absolutely apeshit. And, and I was thinking about that. Um, and it, like, that was a good Spain team too. And like Ricky Rubio is like, I don't know, 12 years old or something, but just like really nasty. And uh, Pau, you know, Pau and Marcus all and uh, like Rudy Fernandez and a couple other dudes. And um and, and I remember thinking like, oh, that was probably my favorite memory of watching Kobe. And I was like, it's probably because it's the only time I ever rooted for him <laughs> the entire time of watching him. Like I remember, you know, I, I enjoyed watching the playoffs, especially that sort of second Lakers run, the the Gasol, Bynum, Lamar Odom, uh, Meta World Peace run. Like, you know, I have fond memories of that. But that, but that was more sort of just watching basketball in the time in my life that that was happening as opposed to, him you know specifically um but yeah yeah anyway sorry i'm rambling but uh 
No, no, it's fine. You, you got me thinking. I mean, I think it's pretty safe to say that we grew up with Kobe, but we also watched Kobe grew up, grow up because when he came into the league, he was 18 years old. And you're just a you're just a kid at that point. You were saying, hey, well, well we were 25. I mean, your brain your brain still isn't fully developed, but you're a little bit more mature than you are <laughs> when you're 18. Um, and I, I, that gold medal game, I agree with you. I, I set an alarm, got up, and watched that entire game, even though it was on at 4 a.m. And I, I remember because I was so excited about it. My sister said, hey, wake me up. She's not a fan of basketball, but it was such a big deal and it transcended the sport outside of the the, the hardcore fan. Like who else is going to get up that early to watch a game? But she watched the whole thing with me and that's one of my favorite all-time memories from home before I ended up moving out. That was, he went, uh, he went Black Mamba in that game. And completely. <laughs> completely. And, I, and I remember the, uh, the four-point play and how Spain kept cutting it close, but we kept we kept them at bay. And the fact that everybody on Team USA, despite all the talent on that team—LeBron, Dwayne Wade, Dwight Howard at the peak of his powers, uh, Jason Kidd—they all deferred to Kobe. They all looked to him in crunch time, and it showed the level of respect and reverence they had for the guy. Given that we were at a point where it was becoming their league, and Kobe was the guy that was transitioning the league to them, so that that, that was really special. And really what I'm what I'm pissed about is we are going to miss out on what was going to be, if not the greatest, one of the greatest post-NBA careers and presences of all time. I mean, I Kobe was so thoughtful and so intentional in, uh, intentional intentional about the things that he said. I, I, I was I was looking forward to hearing what he had to say about LeBron's career and Kawhi and Giannis and some of these younger players because he was always going to give you a good quote. He wasn't just going to speak in platitudes. Going on, uh, we, we're going to miss out on his Hall of Fame speech. We're going to miss out on him and Shaq playfully trash talking. Like all all of these things that were going to be so great and and really. It's it seemed like he was going to be one of the guys that was going to help the WNBA continue to gain popularity and rise to prominence. Which is another unique thing about the NBA, the fact that a lot of the players really, really support and respect the WNBA, and it's becoming a thing, whereas all the other major sports don't have um, a women's league, let alone, let alone one that's growing and gaining popularity. There, there were just so many awesome things that were going to happen that we, you know, we, we could anticipate and not anticipate that we're now going to miss out on. Yeah, I mean, for sure. And, and I think your point about him, you know, because I I felt like he was somebody who had, like, like he was the most heir apparent to Michael Jordan um, of any kind of of the players that came after, I think, um, really at a time when everybody was just looking for the next Jordan in, in a way that was, I think, detrimental, frankly, to the to the league and to the product of, of NBA basketball for, like, 10 years. Um, but... But he was somebody that seemed like, you know, as sort of calculating and as ruthless as he could be uh, a lot of the times, uh, I think a, a little bit more thoughtful and introspective maybe than Jordan was, where Jordan, it just seemed like, you know, his Hall of Fame speech being a perfect example that his competitiveness just couldn't be tamed and, and it drove him and it made him the incredible player that he was. And it's, you know, kind of been a difficult thing for him to grapple with I think as he's moved into post basketball life and it seemed like Kobe was uh, adjusting differently and, and you know maybe a little bit better and um yeah I mean it's just uh it's just pretty wild it's it, you know it, 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 I think it's it's also this idea of sort of people that you see as kind of these mythical figures and sort of thinking that they don't have to worry about some of the day-to-day kind of concerns that everybody else does. And, and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, an accident can happen to anybody. Um, helicopters, car, you know, whatever, like it can happen to anybody. So it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I certainly will no longer be taking my helicopter to work. I think I'll leave mine at home as well. So, I, so, so I, I think the next thing that I, and I, I wanted to talk a little bit about how this might affect Kyrie to bring this back to the perspective of, of, of Nets fans because they were extremely close and that was punctuated by the fact that 
Kyrie immediately called himself out of the Knicks game on Sunday for good reason. It was like looking, losing a family member for him and had stayed in contact. And even Kobe said that himself, that Kyrie was the player that he was closest with and how, how this might have an impact on him. Cause you know, I, I was thinking about this and Ky- Kyrie is not Kobe in a lot of ways, but I also think that he thinks that he's like Kobe and a lot of things that he's doing are, mirror uh mirrors of the type of leadership that kobe exhibited like kobe would go to the media after games between games and call out teammates and try to highlight some of the people that he wanted to play better some of the things that he wanted the team to do as a way to anger motivate create conflict and that you know the phil jackson school of of coaching where you need conflict to come to a resolution and push through those tough moments in the regular season so you're prepared for that conflict in those tough moments once they come in the postseason. But the difference there is Kobe always backed that up with his play on the court. And I'm not talking about shooting percentages or number of passes made. I'm more talking about the level of effort that Kobe gave on the court on the offensive and defensive side of the ball and the amount of games that he played. If Kobe could play, he was on the court. And if he was on the court, he was going 120 miles per hour playing both offense and defense. And I think that gave him the right in a lot of players' minds to say some of those things, even if they didn't always go over well. And you could see how some of the things that Kyrie does would have been motivated or influenced by that. But I just don't think that his on-court play, and it's not necessarily the skill set or what he brings, because he's so, so talented. It's the level of effort that he's giving on both ends of the floor um, every night. And you know the fact that he doesn't play through some of those injuries, and it seems like he picks and chooses when to play versus plays if he's able to, that I, I think separates the two and might create a little bit more conflict with the team. He doesn't have the respect of his team. And this is pure, pure speculation, but I was just I was reflecting on a little bit of that, and I'm interested to see what type of effect this has on him, whether it's positive or negative on the court. Yeah, uh, lots to unpack there. I mean, that, that's I, loaded. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I think, and I'm not trying to like you know drag the guy because obviously he's a pretty important part of uh, the Nets. Like I, I have always felt the thing with Kyrie is um, he's a little bit excited to uh, how, how, should, how would I put this? Um, I think he's sometimes excited to emulate the tactic that he thinks somebody used previously, as opposed to really trying to line up the best solution for a given problem. So to your point, like if, you know, I, you know, I feel like if he's if he's trying to you know rile up his teammates, you know, in in off court interviews, I, I think sometimes it's like he's he's thinking, wouldn't it be cool if this is what happened? Before really thinking, like, hey, w- like what is the problem that I'm I'm trying to solve by doing this? Whereas I think with Kobe, it was a little bit more the other way around. It was a little bit more alcohol, like. I feel like there's a need for my teammates to be battle tested, uh, to deal with some controversy. So therefore the way that I'm going to do that is talking to the media, not, I think it was cool. And Kobe, you know, talk to the media to rile his teammates up. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and do that and then figure out sort of like why it matches up. I, I, I don't know. I just, I don't quite see the same, um, I see the same sort of intention intentionality intentionalness and intentionable um nature in Kyrie. uh i just i just feel like sometimes he misses the point a little bit um with the way that he kind of talks to the media and the way that he kind of comports himself and and you know talks about leadership and trying to be a leader and things like that um i, I also do, feel I, like I Kobe, I, you know sorry I, go ahead I was going to say, I, I agree. I, I've never felt that anything Kyrie has done has been malicious. I always thought it's been done with, with good intent and with the intent of pushing the team towards winning. But what I will say, and this you got me thinking when you were talking, is it just seems like there's uh, a lower level of self-awareness or emotional intelligence when you're comparing him to somebody like Kobe Bryant, who did seem so, so calculated about everything that he did. And it just, it just seems like Kyrie 
thinks that he's being a great leader or thinks that these are the things that make you a great leader and they're separate from like you said the situation versus looking at the situation and reacting in what in, in a way that is best fit to that situation yeah i mean i, I guess maybe a, an apt comparison is like like um when Kobe like refused to shoot a couple times because he felt like everybody was was saying that he shot too much, or, or there was a year that Will Chamberlain did the same thing where everybody kept talking about how Will Chamberlain was a selfish player um, because you know he scored too much, he didn't pass, so he was like, "Great, I'm going to lead the league in assists." But sort of leading the league in assists for the purpose, like pa- you know, passing for the purpose of racking up assists is just as selfish as just scoring. And, and I think Kyrie sometimes looks at things like like that in a way um, where it's like you know. The, the intention is good, um, but you know it, it, it's like he he has an idea of the things that you would notice about him if he were being a good leader, and he tries to do those instead of actually trying to to lead um, pretty well. But that's interesting. It's, it's almost like it's almost like the the leader or the manager that reads a management book or goes through a, through a management class and tries to apply those things as a standard to any situation versus the manager or the leader that assesses a situation and applies a certain level of creativity and like the exact solution to that situation. It's like not this is what I'm supposed to do. It's this is what I should do. Yeah, it's it's like I want to. It's it's like more about like wanting to be known as something as opposed to like actually being it. I right. think in, in my view. And, it, um, but, but getting kind of back to your point in terms of like how it impacts him and what it means, you know, going forward and stuff like that. I, I'm interested to see that too. I think, you know, the team, I, I'm sort of interested to see, I mean, like w- one thing about Kobe that I think you saw throughout his career was this kind of constant evolution uh, for better, for worse on purpose or sort of, you know, by design or sort of by necessity, um, whether it was kind of, you know, the way that his game changed as he went along. I mean, it, the, I was listening to the uh, low post with um, Rachel Nichols and, and Ramona Shelburne on um, earlier this week. And, and one of the things that they pointed out was like how, like, <laughs> I think it, like Zach Lowe basically said, like Kobe could have been any type of player. Like if Kobe, if you, if you brought Kobe into the league right now as an 18 year old, like he could have run, you know, been a point guard that ran a spread pick and roll offense. Like, like he was talented enough to have done all of those types of things. And part of, I think what I was saying before about kind of him being in the Jordan mold was like, that was just what he felt like he was supposed to do. And that was sort of the pinnacle of what basketball was at that point. But like, that wasn't just his game. Um, And so I think, you know, when, when I, look at kind of Kyrie's evolution and and what he's going to be and what this team is going to be like, you know, I I wonder a little bit kind of how, you know, he's going to evolve as this roster fills out, how he's going to kind of change his game, how, how much, you know, because clearly I think there are fit issues that we've seen, right? Like the fact that things seem to run a little bit more fluidly with Spencer Dinwiddie at the point guard than, than with Kyrie at the point guard, like, you know, clearly there's still some work to kind of mesh everybody together. And I'm wondering kind of your thoughts on, is that ways that Kyrie needs to bend? Is that ways that, you know, Kenny Atkinson and the, and the system needs to bend? Is that different guys that need to be involved there? Like kind of what, it, what are, what are your thoughts on that sort of overall kind of evolution? And then, and then I guess, from the basketball side, then sort of where does his leadership fit in? First of all, I think that's the only interesting topic when it comes to Nets basketball throughout the remainder of the season, whether we make the playoffs or not. And sure, it'll be interesting to see who elevates their level of play in the playoffs and who's the the type of player that we can have do battle when teams really can hone in on certain elements of how an offense works and certain players and they can game plan just for one team. But that's, that's going to be the thing this season that keeps me watching because this team has been very lackluster and very tough to watch. But at least we know that if Kyrie Spencer Karras can learn how to play together and play effectively and efficiently together, that that's going to be something that really, really helps us and really helps uh, Kevin Durant, 
ease into coming back from an Achilles injury uh, and playing lower minutes next season. So that, and that, that is what you, what you just touched upon is one of the reasons that I'm keeping myself interested in watching this team, even though there have been some really, really tough performances as of late. So I'd like to give a huge shout out and thank you to the Detroit Pistons for being so God awful that they handed us two wins this week. Thank you. <laughs> we couldn't even beat the Knicks. I know Kyrie didn't play, but Oh man, poor Pistons fans this season. So I uh, go ahead. Well, don't forget that the Nets tried really, really hard to throw the first one away. Yeah, As that the end of I was gonna I was gonna joke with you because it was uh, Brett's birthday last Saturday that um, I put in a call to Kenny and they drew up a play in the huddle so that Kyrie was gonna take it with take a, a three pointer with six seconds left instead of waiting until there were two and the shot clock was gonna wind down and then even though they were going to be saved by the fact that the ball was going to go out of bounds, Spencer was going to dive out, throw it uh, in an attempt to save it in a way that was just a perfect picture, perfect outlet pass to Derek Rose for, for a layup to tie the game. That was, uh, <laughs> it, it was, it, it was pretty, it was pretty incredible. I, there's a reason that I thanked the Pistons and didn't congratulate the Nets. <laughs> let me put it that way but we did eke out a win on my birthday and i was very very grateful for that especially considering the kobe news broke and then we lost to the next the next day which ended up being a, a really really terrible day all around but anyway i, I it, it's tough for me to truly figure out who needs to bend but i'm always of the mindset that the more talented player or the better player should be the one to really take that thought process and figure out how to make it work with the pieces around them because they're ultimately the one that the offense is going to run through because we want the ball to be in the hands of our most talented player. And if that is the case and they're going to be controlling most of the offense, which I would assume would be the case with Irving and Dinwiddie on the floor together, then that person needs to be the one to figure out how to initiate the offense in a way that both of them can be on the floor effectively. Now, that doesn't mean that Dinwiddie isn't going to have to learn to play play off ball better but even if he does it's still going to rely on Kyrie Irving getting him the ball in spots to make him successful and moving around the court in a way that wherever he's positioned frees up the other players for easy cuts baskets and corner threes so I I I would say yes of course it's both of them that have to adjust but the one that has to adjust more is the person that's going to have the ball in their hand more and that's going to be the person that's more talented and that's clearly Kyrie Irving in this case. Now, will there be pointers from Kenny Atkinson that push Kyrie in that direction? Yes, I'm sure. But I think most of this falls on Kyrie's shoulders to start figuring out how he wants to share the ball with his teammates, elevate their level of play, and not take on so much of a burden on his own when he's on the court, which it does seem like he tends toward most of the time when he has the ball, which is dribbling into the middle, trying to take turnaround fadeaways. He knows he can get anywhere that he wants on the floor. And sometimes when the nets are down or the offense has missed a few shots in the row, it just seems like we go into Kyrie hero ball mode because he knows that he can get a decent shot every single time that he has the ball. So the adjustment in my mind has to come from our current best player and leader. Do you agree with that? I do. Um, I think, well, I mean, I guess maybe I, I, I agree with what you said. I think maybe the way that I was thinking about it a little bit more is more at kind of like a uh, a macro level or like a kind of coach team building sort of GM level. Like um, I know that uh, Karan Butler reported, uh, I don't know, two weeks ago or something that, you know, after the those comments broke where, you know, Kyrie basically <laughs> – called out, you know, who, who, you know, the glaring need for, um, additional, uh, you know, star, uh, or star power or effective players on this team, um, which I don't think is wrong. Yeah. And, you know, proceeded to try to like, marry kill with the media and fistedly like list off the roster. And of course, like admitted Jared Allen and Joe Harris, which is, um, you know, probably means nothing, but maybe it means something. I was more bummed that he did name Deandre Jordan, um that's a different story um, that was the bigger headline we'd like but, to keep our worst player yeah if, if possible um 
I don't know. I don't know if he qualifies still. Though. We've uh, we've uh, we've got a couple contenders for that. Um, but but I think but I guess the question is more just like it. It seems a little bit like the system that the Nets want to run would perhaps benefit from somebody else running it, or they need to maybe change it a little bit around uh, Kyrie. And and then you know, do you think that? I guess, do you think the system needs to be tweaked? Do you think the supporting cast needs to be tweaked? Like, in addition to maybe Kyrie changing his game a little bit. Does that make sense? It it does make sense. And I, I think we do need to change the system a little bit. But I don't necessarily think it's worthwhile to do that until this team is in its final form. Because I don't know if the habits that we would be developing with the change system this year to maximize the pieces that we have are going to be useful when this team is, quote unquote, at a championship level, because based on what Kyrie said, and if Karan Butler is truly backing up that statement and saying that it's true, this team is going to look drastically different next season, not only because Kevin Durant is back, but because we've gotten rid of a lot of the role players that Kyrie didn't name and brought in some guys that they're going to be recruiting over the summer. So if we're going to be changing the system, I think next season is when we do that, and next season is when we try to establish the habits that maximize that system versus trying to make everything fit this season so i think that's probably the tough spot that kenny atkinson is in where he's, he's saying okay what can i get out of this season that makes us better next year and the year after when we're competing for a championship versus if i make all these micro changes this season what does that get us and does that actually hurt us in the long run because we're learning things that aren't going to be applicable which is why i was talking a little bit about Karis and Dinwiddie and Kyrie learning to play together and focusing on that is that's the most important thing because those are the three players that are currently on the court that are most likely to be here next season which i would say two out of three are are, are almost 100 percent going to be coming back so speaking of that and and uh, we'll come back to that statement in a second um but just on that idea i think that that first pistons game was the first in which uh dinwiddie moved to the bench um and but also was finishing the game like and i think we've seen a lot of at least in like you know a little bit of different rotation management by Kenny Atkinson. Um, so in particular, I guess it's it's Spencer not starting with the first team, but finishing with the first team. And I guess what what have your thoughts been on that? How, how do you feel like that's been working in terms of him playing off ball? Um, do, do you see that? Because we had talked a lot earlier in the season kind of under the assumption that, you know, that was going to be Karis LeVert's role. Um, obviously, he's seeded that somewhat with the injury and and with, frankly, with Dinwiddie playing pretty well. Um do you see that as a potential long-term option? You know, I do I do like the fact that there are two ball handlers that I trust not to turn the ball over that can get downhill in the game at the same at the same time in crunch time. I think that is incredibly valuable for the Nets to have because if Kyrie gets into trouble, if Spencer gets into trouble, you can kick it out to somebody else that can create their own shot and create their own high percentage shot and isn't likely to turn the ball over, but can also pass at a high, at a, at a very, very high adept level. So th- those are the things that I like. Are Spencer and Kyrie the perfect fits next to each other? No, probably not because neither is or has experience playing off of the ball as much or being a spot-up shooter off of the ball as much. Even Kyrie, when he was playing with LeBron, was more of a pick-and-roll partner where he would get the ball and he would at least have a few dribbles before he was pulling up. Uh, And in that system right now, if one of them is off the ball, it would be more of a Joe Harris-type role where they're either running around screens or they're standing in the corner, which has been a a rough adjustment for them. So right now, I would say I don't like it because it hasn't looked great, but I do think it has the potential to be great as they both adjust, figure out their roles, and adjust to one of them standing in the corner while somebody else is trying to create crunch time offense. So right now, no, but I do think it's a worthwhile experiment to keep hammering into the ground to see if we can get something out of it because there could be greatness there if they figure it out. Yeah, it was interesting. I was looking at um, some Kyrie pairing stats to see kind of who, because, uh, you know, I think one of the things that's interesting as you talk about roster construction for this team is like, I think we've, we've talked a lot about, okay, how do you, how do you have Kyrie Spencer and Karis 
coexist. While if you also throw in Gary Temple, uh, who I think will likely be back next season as a you know very serviceable um, you know rotation guard, and then you throw in like Joe Harris, who I think has been playing primarily at the three, but probably should play more of a two three type role. You know, it's one thing I think to have sort of three guys toggling between two positions when you have a bench. I think it's a little bit of another to have five guys kind of jamming into four slots, um, particularly when you have to make contract decisions coming up on, on Harris and Dan Woody going forward. So I was looking a little bit at, at the, just the combo stats, uh, for all of those guys with, um, with Kyrie. And I, I was, you know, somewhat surprised to find that, uh, Dinwiddie has the highest net rating, uh, playing with Kyrie at the same time. They're plus 2.6. Um, Temple also has a positive net rating, uh, plus 0.99 and then Harris uh is a negative 1.1 essentially and and Levert right now is like a negative 10 um and and obviously there's you know some small sample size thing going on with Harris because of the injury and everything like that but I you know I thought that that was an interesting um look you know it was a little bit encouraging to me I think that that uh, Kyrie and, and Spencer have been playing well together. I think uh, Dinwiddie's defense has been um, encouraging this season. Uh, you know, he, he, I don't think he's a plus plus defender or anything like that, but I think he's he's close to a zero, if not a, a slightly plus defender, um, which is pretty exciting. You know, considering I think the fact that he's been a defensive liability in the past. So I think that there's more to come there, and I'm more of a believer. I, I guess of all of the options, like I'm more of a believer in him in that role right now, um, going forward. I, I am too, and I do think that they'll figure it out. I, I just think it takes a lot of time for players that are used to holding the ball and are high usage players to figure out how to play next to each other, especially when everybody else that's going to be in the game around them are going to be either spot up shooters or Jared Allen or DeAndre Jordan that have roll gravity and, and, and really nothing else. I and mean, if you want to look at some of the um, usage percentages for the Nets players, Dinwiddie on the season's at 97%, Kyrie Irving's at 96%, and then you go to all the way down to Karis LeVert at 84%. That is really, 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 really tough to take players that are used to dominating an offense, being the focal point, and every decision that gets made being run through them to figuring out, oh, okay, now I'm playing with this other player that's used to doing this. I want to be a good teammate and I want to make sure that everybody's involved, but I also know what I do best. And when push comes to shove and we're in crunch time and the game's on the line, do I really want to default to this thing that I'm not comfortable with? Or do I want to default to the thing that I've done my whole career that has made me tens of millions of dollars and that I know I can be successful doing? And I think that's why it's been such a tough adjustment. And I, I think that it's going to take them 20 games of trying this to get into some sort of groove and i do see the Nets starting to play better post all-star break when they've had enough time together it's just been very very tough with Kyrie sitting out random games uh, and sitting out such a large portion of the season for us to get those reps which is why the nets have been playing so poorly and losing so many close games and seemingly throwing these games away because it's, it's just going to take some time and I, I i do truly believe that they're going to figure it out but it's going to be after fans lose interest and lose hope and then all of a sudden it's gonna be like, oh the brooklyn nets are on a five to six game winning streak what does this mean does Kyrie has Kyrie Kyrie Irving changed his leadership style. What, what's going on here? It's like, no, they just <laughs> finally got reps in. They haven't played together. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. And I, I think the other thing that I think is kind of interesting about it with the way that the rotation is set up right now is you're kind of asking, uh, let's assume Spencer's the off-ball guy because I think he is. Like you're really asking him to do both, right? You're asking him to run the second unit, um, you know, off the bench for – half or three quarters of the game and then, you know, finish the game with the starters as an off ball guy. So I, I think that that's an interesting adjustment for him. Um, and I do think, you know, I think the other thing that I've, I've always sort of thought this season is I think in general, the team overall is adjusting and Kyrie is adjusting to running kind of this system. And, and, you know, Kenny had said that as well in terms of like the institutional knowledge that Spencer has. And I think that's a little bit why things look a little bit more seamless when Kyrie was out, um, you know, even though maybe the numbers would indicate that they've been a little bit better offensively when he's when Kyrie's been in. 
Well, and that's one of the reasons that I really, really don't want to trade Spencer Dinwiddie because I think he's one of the few players that has a skill set and the intelligence to do all the things that he might be asked to do as we figure out what type of players and what type of offense fits around Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. Like you said, I think he is the type of guy that can figure out how to play off ball in crunch time, something he's never had to do for his entire career, or be the focal point of a bench unit that has been, well, well, trash this season, but it's been buoyed by the fact that Spencer Dinwiddie is an offense in and of himself, can shoot the three, can drive to the hole, and doesn't turn the ball over. So that's, that, that is one of the reasons why I do think that he will remain with the team, unless something incredibly compelling like a Carl Anthony Towns deal decides to fall into our lap. Well, so, and I think one sort of step in that direction is the fact that uh, uh, and, and I, I have one more player to come back to in a second, but I think fair to point out that one more step in that direction is, is that the all-star reserves came out today and Spencer Dinwiddie is not among the Eastern conference reserves. So uh, I think in terms of, you know, I, I think it looked at one point this season, like, you know, he was going to become an all-star, be a candidate for a max deal. And, and basically they were going to be stuck, uh, having to pay him a lot more than they were going to be able to coming out of after next season when his option expires. Now, part of that calculus was because I was assuming that the Nets were going to have to, and, and still think they very well may pay a lot more money to Joe Harris this off season than he is currently making. Um, Harris, however, has been in a little bit of a slump. I think this season is, is fair to say. Um, I was looking at his numbers um, today, just sort of overall. And I, you know, I was, Intrigued to see like his his sort of shot percentage and sort of the complexity the, the complexion of his uh, the way that he's scoring is pretty much the same like the percentage of his field goal attempts that are threes and the percentage of his points that are threes are pretty similar to what it was last year um, the the difference is you know his attempts are up slightly and and his uh, efficiency is down um, you know he dropped from being like a 46, 47 percent free th- three point shooter on the year last year to being a thirty nine. And I think for a guy who relies on his three ball, um, you know, for, for so much of his effectiveness, that's a pretty big drop, even though 39% from, from three is still you know, pretty excellent. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, at, at the same time, I feel like he's done a lot of other stuff really, really well for this team. And, and, you know, he's a guy that's been, you know, knows the system super well. He fits that complimentary role super well. I guess, do you have thoughts about his future with the team going forward? Are they different than you would have thought earlier this year? Um, you know, how are you feeling about uh, about Joey Buckets? I love Joey Buckets, but I am feeling differently and solely based on what Kyrie Irving said. I think Joey Buckets is the type of player that would be fine and would be putting up big numbers if there was enough talent consistently around him to – get him the ball in a more diminished role and allow him to do what he does best, which is sneak up on teams with a few drives. If the defense is already off balance, because there's been a couple more talented offensive players that you can run the offense through uh, getting into the lane, creating mismatches, getting players to scramble uh, or spotting up from three when defenders aren't two feet away from him and he doesn't have to get that shot up quickly. So I am still very high on Joe Harris. I don't think that last season was a fluke. I still think he's a top five three-point shooter in the league. And I think that his numbers are down this season because of all the injuries and the changes, because of all the injuries to the Nets' best players and the changes that we made to the peripheral players that Joe learned to play with. Defenses can hone in on him a lot more than they should have been able to. But ultimately, I think that and you had brought this up, I believe, on a previous podcast, I think that it helps the Nets because if he's not playing as well, then you might be able to sign him to a lower contract or it might make him think a little bit more about taking a hometown discount to stay with the Nets because he believes he can be successful in this system when everybody on the roster is healthy. So I'm, I'm overall high on uh, on Joey Bucket still. I still think he's one of the best players in the league. And I now think we have a little bit more of a shot of retaining him if we're looking at it compensation-wise. But the fact that Kyrie Irving didn't name him is telling. I thought that comment was intentional. And uh, because of that and that alone, I actually don't think he'll be back with the Nets next season, which is crazy to say. Do you, do you really? I mean, like, do you really think that... that- I mean, because the the two omissions from that list were him and and Allen. Um, I don't 
I guess I, I question a little bit his GM savvy. Uh, if that's sort of the way that he's he's gonna go, I mean, well, I guess Prince was too, but I don't, I don't have a problem with that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I, I guess maybe I didn't. I just assumed it wasn't quite as intentional as you are. I, I thought he just sort of started listing players on the team and you know didn't uh, you know necessarily complete it, but but it was. I, I mean. It, dude, it's, it's tough for me to believe that he didn't know how this comment was going to be taken when he was making it. And he listed so many names. The fact that he forgot Joe Harris and Jared Allen is tough for me to really believe. Uh, and also, I think we've seen recently a massive trend in star players playing a huge, huge role in recruiting and orchestrating trades and free agent signings behind the scenes. I think if Kyrie truly believes that Joe Harris and Jared Allen aren't going to be here next season, he also believes that he and Kevin Durant can talk to a couple other players that are going to more than replace them and find a way to get them on this team. It, which is interesting, and who knows if that's actually going to be the case. But we do now. Two, we do now have two players that are clearly able to recruit folks, and he listed off Garrett Temple, who he wanted on the team, and it talked to Sean Marks about bringing in. So he's got that kind of clout and that kind of influence, and I think he's going to try to exert it with KD in the offseason uh, in a way that he doesn't think we're going to need. Jared Allen and Joe Harris. Now, maybe I am reading too much into it. Maybe he's just listing players and forgot those guys. But it didn't seem like one of those comments where he wouldn't know what he was doing and how it was going to be taken in a negative way. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I agree with the negative piece of it. I just don't know how intentional the, the list was. Because, like, there's also, like, some question. I mean, like, Wilson Chandler was, like, mentioned as, like, somebody that had, you know, not played for a while. Does that mean that he's, like, in the – is he in the in the club? Um, you know, and and Harris and Allen are out. I, I I don't I don't necessarily disagree with you. I, I think at the very least it shows that he's not you know in the maybe inner circle of Kyriedom, um, which you know, interesting perhaps in terms of who is, but not really. I mean, like you know, Jordan obviously came as part of that package. I think you're right that Temple came as part of that package. So. Um, you know, kind of makes sense. And and I guess of all the guys, I mean, like Harris is the most likely not to be here just by sheer fact that he's a unrestricted free agent at, at the end of the season. So um, if, you know, the, the Nets could very well have every intention of bringing him back and still not. Uh, whereas if they have every intention of bringing Jared Allen back, Jared Allen will be back because Jared Allen is under contract. Um, right. Jared, you know, when I, when I look at kind of the, the roster filling out for next season, like I, you know, I've, I, I have felt at various points, like, you know, Kyrie and Durant are untouchable. Uh, Jordan is probably unmovable. And, <laughs> you know, you, you probably get, you know, some amount of, you know, between Dinwiddie, Levert, Allen, Harris, like, you know, you get some amount of those guys back, but but not necessarily all of them. Um, I I kind of think Dinwiddie probably stays just because he's also super tight with Kyrie. I mean, and he did, I mean, you want to talk about having recruiters on your team. I mean, he was obviously, you know, one of the guys that was pretty instrumental in recruiting Kyrie. Um, Allen is maybe, you know, I don't know. I don't know what to make of Allen. I certainly don't think they'll get a better center for a better value than him. Um, But at the same time, like if they do need to make a trade, he's one of the few pieces of value that they would have to, to do that with uh, in addition to potentially like Levert. So it's interesting. Uh, with DeAndre Jordan, what happens when an unmovable contract meets an unstoppable luxury tax payment? <laughs> <laughs> What's going to happen there? And I think we really lucked out with Dinwiddie in the all-star reserve selections. It was very clear that the league and the voters valued players that were playing well on winning teams. If you look, the, look at the players that made it from the Eastern Conference, they all came from the top five seats, Celtics, Sixers, Heat. Pacers held Demonis Sabonis even made the team, and he's had a great season. But I, I think you could look at a few other players that could have made the team over him. And same thing in the Western Conference too. You had guys like Devin Booker that didn't make the team, albeit he was probably deserving because he was he's playing on the Suns, who are not a very very good team. 
So I thought that was uh, that was interesting, and I know that they valued that in the past, but it doesn't happen every year like that year where all five Hawks starters made it because they were on pace to win 60 games. But I do think that that is going to um, that is going to help in the future when it comes to looking at Spencer Dinwiddie's contract because it's tough for me to believe with all the talent that we're supposedly going to be adding to this team that Dinwiddie's ever going to have a season where he's allowed to shine like he has this year. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good I think that's a good point, and I think it's an interesting uh, kind of crossroads for him, and it would make me concerned as a Dinwiddie uh, Bond owner. Um, that you know, perhaps he's not going to cash in the max deal because he's going to tr- try to chase rings, um, which is you know an interesting, uh, interesting side effect of of you know uh, investing in in players' futures. Side note: impromptu game. If you could buy stock in any players in the league right now, who'd you buy stock in? Oh yeah, putting um, you on the spot, baby. So I'm so I am buying stock like purely for my economic benefit in terms of like who's going to get max like who's going to get a max deal exactly you're thinking about who's going to get a better bigger contract than expected so you can get some returns on that investment so like okay so so i so i'm not gonna say like Giannis or somebody that's like super obvious that they're gonna get a max right that because that's you're you're assuming that the market would price that bond so um I would, uh, I mean, Siakam's probably too obvious at this point, um, but I definitely think he, he's a max player going forward. Um, I would feel pretty comfortable with that investment. Um, uh, let's see. I would say, I, I, I probably would not buy uh, Trey Young stock as much. I think, you know, as fun as he's been, um, I don't, I don't really see, you know, well, it's, 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 a, it's a tough game, right? Because like, if I'm building a team, I probably wouldn't get go for him, but like, I do feel like he's the type of player that like will get paid no matter what. Um, I don't know. What, what are you, who, who, who are you thinking about? Yeah. I, I'd love to say Bam Adebayo, but I think he, that he is too obvious at this point as well, because he's had such a good season. I think that I would look at teams that have severely underperformed and try to pick a few players off of those teams' lists. So, for example, the Kings and the Suns were two teams that I was thinking about. And you're looking at somebody, DeAndre Ayton, who is a number one pick, went through suspension, has not put up great stats, and is was even coming off the bench when he came back from that suspension. That could be an interesting person to invest in, although the fact that he was that number one pick could really hurt that. But if you're looking at the Kings, the Aaron Foxes, had a down season marvin bagley has been injured and hasn't done much those could be guys where i feel like you could you could get in a buy low scenario if you were invested in players that easily could turn the corner especially with somebody like a De'Aaron fox as a point guard who tend to have those big jumps a little bit later into their rookie contracts versus earlier like big men who can make an impact on the defensive end right away so those are a few yeah. of the players that that came to mind where i feel like they could be worth more than people are projecting them based on their stats this season yeah, and it, I mean, I'm probably getting lost in the semantics of the game that we didn't actually create rules for. But um, and speaking of which, we can talk about the All Star uh, rules in a second. Um, but you know, with with Aiton, like I actually wonder if him being the number one pick actually would help you in that scenario because I think you'd feel like okay, he's not going to be good enough to necessarily justify a Mac contract, but he might get paid one or very close to one because of his draft slot and because you know what he's eligible for from a salary perspective. Like I always felt that way about. Uh, D'Angelo Russell a little bit like no no knock on him or anything but like that was always I think what scared everybody about you know him getting paid was like you know he here's this guy who went through sort of being considered somewhat of a bust and I think really like as a number two pick like you don't have to be a bust per se you could have been somebody that would have been fine to have been taken at you know number 10 or 11 but because you're number two and you're getting that you know, your contract slot is guaranteeing you the type of money that it is. It just makes that type of decision all that much harder on a team. But at the same time, you know, the way that the league works, like some, all it takes is one person to offer you that money. And um, I don't know if it helps or hurts the fact that Aiton's already on the Suns, which is like one of the more incompetent franchises. But um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Interesting. We, you know, if we had prepped for that, that might've been more fun. 
to have better answer scores. <laughs> that, that was my fault. That just came, it just came off the top of my head. But I think I think I'm going to call that either the D'Angelo Russell rule or the Marvin Williams rule moving forward, where you have somebody like Marvin Williams who was a second round pick in 2005, and because he was a second round pick, by all means, you can look at his career and call him a bust and say that he underperformed. But he became a really valuable player, and the league actually evolved to fit the type of player that he was, which was a switchy forward who could shoot the three. And he ended up having a really extended, productive, great career. But because of his pick status, he was always viewed as somebody that had not lived up to expectations. Well, I mean, and then bringing it back full circle, I mean, I think that's always with with Dinwiddie. I think that's always kind of the thing, right? Is like, you know, if if Dinwiddie were a, a lottery pick, you know, I, I feel like some of the, con- the the decisions around his salary and the opportunities, you know, for him to make money would be a, a lot, a much different conversation than, you know, him kind of getting, coming out of the G League, getting signed by Brooklyn. And then basically Brooklyn was able to give him the, ma- I mean, like everybody talked about, oh, he took a hometown discount. Like, no, the, the Nets gave him the absolute maximum amount of money that they were allowed to give him under the collective bargaining agreement in the contract that he has right now. Or, well, not, I guess not not the full years, but but pretty much the same. And, and he was, you know, able to, to use the leverage. Of, of playing as well as he did to get fewer years um but you know it, it's sometimes you get into those like weird scenarios with the way that the uh the rookie scale structure works yeah yeah no, you're right and that was something that was very nuanced and fans didn't really understand at the time and everybody was saying hey spencer did when he took a, a discount to sign with the nets or look at that contract it's so favorable but really it was everything that we could give Dinwiddie in the format that we gave it to him which also, Okay, By the way, sorry. I mean the contract was favorable too, but like like that was that was the thing is like you know, cashing in the lottery ticket by by hitting on somebody that came out of the G League is you know pays for years because you get that it becomes a cost controlled asset for much longer than it would have been if you had drafted a player higher in the draft. Exactly, and fun fact from looking up Marvin Williams, I have now learned that his middle name is Gay, so his name is Marvin Gay Williams. Makes total sense. <laughs> it's pretty cool i i was just i was almost about to sing but i'm gonna i'm gonna pass <laughs> i appreciate that do you want to go through the uh the all-star rules i can read some of them off absolutely it sounds like it would be very straightforward please <laughs> right yes it's it's going to be completely simple i have a bullet pointed list and it's about uh 24 pages long in a word document with a font size of five huh? my, my my favorite is that there is like actually i think six bullets in their release and the fourth bullet was for example and it's about a you know 13 line paragraph it's it's pretty wild, especially considering they nixed the in-season tournament because I think it was a little bit too complex for everybody to talk through and figure out how to make money out of. But I will say that before we even get into these changes, I am so intrigued by them that I'm going to be watching at least some of the All-Star game this year, which I have not watched in years. So uh, mission accomplished, I guess. <laughs> but, but effectively, these changes include trying to make the game more interesting on a per-minute basis. So the, I think the, the biggest one is both of the teams are going to be competing to win each of the first three quarters, and winning a quarter now matters. So even if one team gets way, way ahead in the first quarter, it doesn't matter, and the game resets once the clock strikes zero and switches over to that second quarter. The score will be 0-0. Zero, zero. So each of the quarters will be 12 minutes long, nothing different there, but the players will play out each quarter. It'll reset, and then the, uh, whoever, whatever team wins that quarter, the, there will be money donated to a charity of their choice. So those are a few of the rules. Uh, would you like so, me to – oh, so good. Well, so, so I had a question just jumping ahead a little bit. So I understood, you know, like winning the quarter and donating money, that's cool. I think that makes sense because I think the NBA probably realizes that it's the type of event that people will tune in for, but probably not watch all of. So the fact that like you could watch a quarter is, you know, that, that makes sense to me from just like a television perspective. Um, but then, but then talk to me about the fourth quarter where it like resets and it's like the combined value of all of the previous quarters plus 24 or something like that. It's very confusing. So they've set it up in a way that 
you think when you're reading through the rules that, oh, that's cool. So the point total from the previous quarter doesn't matter. It'll keep it interesting. It'll be 12-minute spurts. But then they take it back in the fourth quarter, and they say, hey, just kidding. Everything that you guys scored in the past three quarters now does matter. So we're going to add up your total points from the first three quarters. That's going to be your score. And then we're going to add up the other team's total points from the first three quarters. That's going to be your score. So we're going to set that score, and then we're going to take whichever team is ahead, add 24 points to that total, and say this is the target that both teams have to get to. There is now no time limit, no 12-minute time limit, no 5-minute time limit. doesn't matter. There is no time. Whichever team reaches that point total, which is the team that's ahead plus 24 points to, RB, uh, to honor Kobe Bryant, will win the game, which is pretty radical. Yeah, it's it, so it's very interesting. So I, I really actually like the fourth quarter format. I think that's a cool. I think I think it's a cool idea. I think it gives you kind of like that pickup game intensity in terms of like it, it sort of forces you to play defense in a way that like maybe you wouldn't otherwise in an all star game. So so that's kind of interesting. I, I don't one hundred percent get the point of like the two the two things in terms of the quarters resetting and the way that they're doing the fourth quarter both make sense to me. I don't really understand why you do both of them because you're basically resetting the score but you're also keeping it so uh, seems a little bit pointless like i feel like you could just i don't know um keep track of who wins the quarter anyway like i usually look at like in nets games and i'm like oh hey they got smoked in the fourth quarter again um (laughs) so so that's a little weird to me but overall it sounds kind of interesting sounds intriguing I, i I love the I love the idea of them playing. Uh, although a twenty four point, so basically we're saying that whatever the gap is, uh, the team that's ahead coming into the fourth quarter only has to score twenty four points. Correct. And they have to score twenty four points before the team that's behind scores twenty four plus whatever amount they're behind. So I think it works really really well if the game is close heading into the fourth quarter, and I think yes. it's probably dumb if it's not. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that's one of the reasons that they set those quarterly targets and they set the fact that you can win $100,000 to a charity of your choice if you win those quarters to try to keep the game close and give those teams an incentive to keep it close because we've we've watched a lot of all-star games where they've been 30, 25-point blowouts come the fourth quarter and then it's been all about players shooting threes from 10 feet behind the arc or throwing the reserves in there or jogging up and down the court and not caring because who the heck wants to get hurt in an all-star game it just doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things doesn't add anything to your legacy doesn't add anything to your career stats it really does nothing for you nobody cares about all-star mvps right no i mean and i think it's a i think it's a reasonable way to make it fun i just i don't I wonder if they did two things when they should have picked one. Fair. Like if they had chosen that, add 24, you're already incented to not be behind by a lot because, hell, if you're behind by more than five, that makes it really, really tough to outscore the other team by five, especially when there's a point limit on it. I could see that. Yeah, or just reset every quarter and, and you know, I don't know. You, you could have... Um... I don't know, counted the quarter win as its own thing. I don't know. I think I don't have a better idea. So yeah, I just feel like it was a way to keep fans invested during the the first three quarters. And and I do, and I do like, I mean, I do like it for the reason that I said, right. Which is that you could tune in and what, you know, be eight minutes into the first quarter and feel like, okay, I'm going to keep watching this for till the end of the quarter because there's like a winner assigned at that point. Right. Right, and I think that's a thing because I think if you had just set it to be that fourth quarter play until you hit this point total tournament, that's awesome, and people would tune in for that. But it, the, it doesn't make the first three quarters particularly exciting until that point. So that's why they, I think they were hedging their bets, and they said, okay, this, this is cool. This makes the end of the game great, and maybe the teams will care a little bit more in the first three quarters. But how do we keep the fans invested in those first three quarters when they believe they're watching a farce and they're watching players try not to get hurt versus competing? Well, I mean, it's like it's almost like you can you can either choose to watch the game or you can choose to watch the quarters, like th- th- sort of two different viewer models for for you. 
I think you can choose to gamble on the quarters, which is probably well, what they were going for. That's, that's, that's fair, too. I mean, it, it definitely gamifies it. It's, it's interesting. I don't hate it. I certainly have no, like, there's no sanctity of the All-Star game or anything like that anyway. So um, I'm all for experimenting. I think, you know, we could, probably could have picked a rule change that, you know, fit on a single handout. But I get, you know, I get wanting to put the Kobe angle in there, too. Yeah, I mean, hell, even those religious fanatics can fit everything on one pamphlet. <laughs> I'm not going to make a joke. <laughs> you don't want to touch on uh, Kobe Bryant's trial and religion on the same podcast, Carl? <laughs> uh, we should probably just wrap things up because we're all given that both of our voices sound like, uh, you know, somebody. I don't know, put our vocal cords in a blender. Uh, I guess thanks for thanks for tuning in. Uh, you can follow us uh, on Twitter at Russell and Fro. You can uh, hit us up on the email, electronic mail, for those of you keeping score at home, uh, russellandfro at gmail.com. Or if you're feeling frisky, netspulse at gmail.com too. Still works. We, we check it. We use it to, to sign into Cleaning the Glass and other stats sites. Uh, you can find us wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Google, Pocket Cast, iTunes, Stitcher, Breaker, Cracker, Uncle Cracker, uh, Spotify. Leave us a review. Five stars, three stars, one star. We don't care. Preferably five, though. Uh, I think that's the maximum you're allowed to, to have. Um, but any review we'll take, so it's fine. Uh, anything Anything else, Brett? No, that was probably your most comprehensive wrap-up of all time. I was thoroughly impressed. As long as we slid Uncle Cracker in there, I think we're, yeah, I think we're in good You usually forget to mention Uncle Cracker and, and Fastball, so I'm glad you threw them in there. <laughs> where were, where was it going without ever knowing the way? All right, well, uh, thank you very much. We'll uh, we'll catch you next time. We, we might have a new topic to talk about with the Nets, but yeah, we probably won't. But, uh, you know, we'll be here anyway. Yeah. Like a mama, you birthed me. Brooklyn, you nursed me. You school me with hard knocks. Reddit and Berkeley. They said you murdered me by the time I was 21. That shit disturbed me. But you never hurt me. Hello, Brooklyn. If we had a daughter, guess what? I'm a caller. Brooklyn Carter. When I left you for Virginia, it didn't offend you. Because you know I only stepped out to get dinner. Hello, Brooklyn. How you doing? Our back.